This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Valley. I'm coming at you without my co-host, Andy Bailey, today, but fear not, because we are joined by the ever-awesome Cole Zibwicker from The Stepian. If you have not checked out The Stepian this season, or ever, uh, you don't know what you're missing, uh, my draft prep is so much better, still bad, but so much better because of them that his <laughs> website is fantastic. The stuff they write over there is great. A bunch of hardworking guys there. Their analysis is incredible. You definitely need to check out the Stepian. Um, he is also a frequent guest of the Game Theory podcast, which I only bring up, hosted by Sam Bassini of The Athletic, which I bring up because I've listened to it a lot, particularly lately, and you guys are fantastic. So I hope you know that and sort of the last toot your horn thing I'll do before we get into it is Andy was super upset when he found out that you agreed to come on for a draft mailbag and he couldn't make it like he was actually upset (laughs) well uh, I appreciate you having me on man it's good to be back yes we're excited to have you um since I actually forgot be sure to follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Zwicker that's C-O-L-E-Z-W-I-C-K-R Quick reminder to please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. We forever appreciate it. But we are going to dive into this draft day mailbag that our listeners were kind enough to throw some questions at. But I'm actually going to be super selfish and ask a question of my own first. Is that okay with you? Let's roll. Am I? Every year it seems like I become infatuated with somebody who is supposed to fall outside the top 10 or doesn't really belong there. And last year it was Justin Patton, and that clearly didn't turn out well in Minnesota. And this year it's Shea Alexander, and I'm wondering, am I wrong to just be, I would say, atypically high and enamored with him? Yeah, there's definitely a strong basis for that. He is viewed by a lot of guys as a top 10 pick in this class, maybe even by some as the number one overall point guard in the class. I think the divisiveness with him just comes down to how much of a true point guard you really think this guy is as far as his dynamic creation ability on ball. His pull-up jumper isn't very advanced. It's kind of slow and deliberate. He doesn't have a high three-point rate. He just doesn't take a lot of threes. So in the modern game, how dynamic can he really be if he's initiating your offense? A lot of us see him more as a combo guard or a wing type that can provide secondary ball handling he's to me he's a less athletic version of Dalon Wright that kind of iteration of player of course he's a lot younger so he can improve and get better than that but he's more of like a secondary tertiary handler to me than he is like a pure dynamic point guard mostly because of the shooting all right that you know that doesn't make me any more down on him but I still think I'm probably way too high on him then (laughs) our first question comes from he actually had three questions and it seems like it was specific to analysis that you have provided in the past, comes from Behind Curve, at Behind Curve. Um, he says, I was a lot higher on Hamadou Diallo um, because I think he can change his shot. He's already shown the ability to at least tinker with his form. Do you consider him not draftable because of the form, or are you low on him for other reasons? Yeah, it's definitely other reasons. I don't think he's a very functional athlete. He's a very high-level leaper as far as the combine last year. We saw his no-step vertical, all of that stuff. Like He pops physically when it doesn't apply to the floor, especially defensively, but I don't think the basketball awareness is there on either side of the floor. Not a very instinctual defender to be kind, and then offensively kind of the same. He doesn't create for others, so... In theory, I, I get the allure with him. I think Zaire Smith, for example, is kind of what we hoped Hamadou Diallo would be. He's just a very functional, high-level athlete with actual feel and instincts. If Diallo shoots, I think that's fine. I, I don't have a problem taking him in the last five picks or so in the second round because you're barely getting a return in that range that's positive. But I don't see a lot of redeeming qualities, at least unless you really think that you can hone the skill level. And I don't know how much you can really teach instincts. So that's why I'm just a little lower on him. Now, there's revisionist theory is always easy, but do you think where do you think he would have gone had he declared for the draft last year? 
Definitely in the first round. I think it would have gone late first um, in the 20s somewhere. I think after, yeah, just the whole mystery man thing that tends to work out for prospects when they're highly athletic and they had a high pedigree coming into college. Like he was a very sought after recruit, of course. Um, and on the high school level, people thought he could potentially be the next Victor Oladipo. So I do think he probably goes 20s. And now you're looking at him more from the 40 to 60 range. That is quite the fall. Probably call that a plunge. <laughs> um, he also asked, how did you end up with Mikael Bridges over Miles Bridges? And I hope I didn't reverse those because I feel like Mikael Bridges over Miles Bridges is a pretty popular opinion. Yeah, honestly, it's it's very interesting. I think they're just totally different players. So it's kind of what you like and value in a player and what your scheme is. Like Miles Bridges it has more offensive upside. He's a better athlete as far as, you know, can shoot off movement. Both of them can, but Miles can put the ball on the floor better. He's got a better functional handle, probably a better passer on the move, and he's much more explosive. He's going to be really good attacking closeouts. But his off-ball defense is not good. Like his awareness, he doesn't stay dialed in. Uh, his lack of wingspan at only six, nine hurts him there. It, despite the strength, like if you're in a switching scheme, I like miles there. Cause he can switch better. He's got that physical strength. Mikhail is a better, a much better team defender. He has that seven, two wingspan. He's just a much better defensive player overall, especially off the ball um, on the ball. Not quite as good as miles because miles is a little bit quicker and has the strength. Uh, but Mikhail doesn't have that advanced offensive acumen on the other end. So he's not a very good dribbler. Uh, you mostly want him in a Clay Thompson-esque role, but I think he can fill that role and play within himself better than Miles. But I get, you know, either way, there are strong arguments to both these guys. I believe the last time you were on the Game Theory podcast, you said Mikel Bridges has a chance to be a more athletic Otto Porter, and that to me makes it seem like he just could essentially fit anywhere if that's the type of player we're looking at, and which is why someone like him would appeal to me far more than Miles Bridges. Yeah, I think that general archetype, like he's not as skilled as Otto Porter, Porter coming out. Like Porter's a better ball handler, he's a better passer. I think his field level's higher. Uh, but that iteration of player, I think that that archetype makes sense in certain respects. He's more of a team defender than he is an on-ball. Like Otto's not like great on-ball because he doesn't have great quickness, but he is big and he uses his size. He's just bigger than Mikhail. So I don't expect Mikhail to get that good, but just that kind of conceptual player. If you value team defense, if you value shooting, the ability to shoot off movement, I think that Mikhail's probably a little undersold in this draft because of those qualities. And it would probably be me just spitballing here. It has to be, or at least in theory, a, a touch easier to kind of get someone to journey outside his comfort zone and develop him into more of an on-ball, self-sufficient score than it would be to teach a guy like Miles Bridges to be a better team defender. That's my personal philosophy as well. I just think the, the stuff that are tied to instincts and just your natural tendencies on the court, like how you're, you're brought up and how you're developed, I don't know if you can change a lot of that stuff. It's just in the moment, on-court decision-making, etc. Like that, that's just ingrained to you over time. So I think it's harder to like kind of change the mental components of the game that it is to tell a guy to be a little bit more aggressive. If that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense to me. His final question, which is actually my favorite one. Um, as someone who I just feel like wants to buy into the Wendell Carter jr. Hype, but just hasn't yet. <laughs> if he does fall to the New York Knicks or Philadelphia 76ers range nine and 10, do you think he's a no brainer fit with Porzingis and Orrin bead or, if that's the situation, should one of them look at trading out of their spot at that point? Should Wendell Carter still be available? I think I would do the latter and trade out. Wendell Carter will definitely be best player available, likely on my board. I have him really, really high. I love the player. I love so many elements of his game, but he's a five. Uh, I don't want him playing the four. That just reduces all of his offensive value, like his ability to attack closeouts, put the ball on the floor, make decisions as a short roll guy. He needs to be involved more offensively at the five uh, against less agile defensive players. So as much as I love the player and the value at that point in the draft would be fine, like him at nine or 10, great value. But I, I don't like the fit long term. I don't think you're going to recoup it. So I would look in that situation to deal the pick and capitalize on his trade value. This brings up kind of an issue that I've struggled to grapple with or even reconcile. Mirai is Japanese for the future. And in the future, your commute will be less expensive because now you can get a special lease on a Toyota Mirai. Powered by hydrogen, it emits only water. And Toyota will cover three years worth of your fuel costs up to $15,000. You'll also get three years no-cost scheduled maintenance, HOV lane access, and may be eligible for a $5,000 state rebate. The future sounds pretty good, huh? Get your special lease on a Mirai today. See San Francisco Toyota or click the banner for details. Toyota, let's go places. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. 
We do it right too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Style since it's been happening. I don't understand how Luka Doncic isn't a consensus number two pick at this point. I don't understand why he's fallen down draft boards. And then above all else, I don't understand why his hits are coming because big guys are moving up people's draft board. When we've seen what has happened in the league over the years, and specifically you look at some of these playoff matchups and how often big men have been marginalized and Clint Capella in the conference finals. He's not a shooter, obviously, but he all of a sudden isn't really able to play 30 minutes a night. You're still getting 23, 25 minutes from him. But given everything we know about the league, do you have an explanation for why it it seems like this is happening? It doesn't have to be Donkic specifically, but even all these bigs so high at the top of the draft. And then you see Luka as a playmaking wing, who you would think is the archetype of someone that everyone wants to build around, continues to slip. Yeah, the Luka point is spot on. I have no idea. Like, I don't understand why he's not the consensus number one player in the draft. I, I don't get, like, let alone number two. I'm taking number one. Like, I think he is this is that guy. He has the pedigree. He has the projectable game. Is that playmaking wing, like you said, but also can initiate your offense. How many of those guys at 6'8 come around who can shoot the ball at the dribble, have a high-level handle, and have an outlier basketball intelligence? It just doesn't make any damn sense to me. As far as the, the big bigs go overall i think that's kind of a tough spot because i can't push a guy like kevin knox for example who's more of a combo four type who can shoot it a little bit off movement but not very high iq level not very high skill level i, I can't just put him ahead of a wendell carter just be- because he's a combo four compared to a big like i think that a lot of these bigs are very good and they have really high ceiling outcomes so i understand them still going in the top 10 that's just kind of what this draft is this very top heavy on bigs but they're actually good um and i can't push guys that are you know, less good players ahead of them. Like I, I can see more arguments for a guy like Miles Bridges or Mikhail Bridges uh, going ahead of some of these bigs for some teams, especially if you're like the Cavs or the Warriors or the Rockets, and you know you're competing over the next three to four years. That makes a lot more sense to me. But yeah, to your overall point, I, I think in this draft you just kind of have to stomach the bigs because that's where the the value is at the top. But as far as Luka Doncic, I mean, he should be the number one guy in my opinion, and he should not be falling to four or five. It just makes no sense. And that, it's it's specifically then, too, with what you said. You look at it when you're talking about a guy like Bagley or Aiton. Why, why are they then being drafted over Doncic? Because even if this is... I, I, so it's a big man-heavy draft, and, that, and that's clear. And a lot of these guys have talent. You look at Aiton, and he's, he can play like a guard on offense a bunch of the time, which is pretty incredible. But you don't look at any of these bigs, to me, necessarily at the top, tippy-top most of the draft. Maybe Jaron Jackson Jr., who I've fallen in love with over the past few weeks but you don't I don't look at them and say that's someone who's really going to just defend in space and be able to switch a bunch and and make you forget that you're watching a big guy and to see that Luca has dropped so much to where we've I saw one mock draft I can't remember where it was but had him going at five so to see him fall to five or even four when we talk about the Grizzlies it just kind of boggles my mind even when you factor in the offensive skill sets of some of these guys or even the rim protection of some of these guys I don't want I haven't seen, or from what I've seen from any of them, none of them make me forget that I'm watching a big man on the defensive end. Yeah, and this draft had Anthony Davis 2.0. Like, that guy could, you'd have legitimate arguments for him, number one, of course, because Anthony Davis is incredible. Uh, We don't have quite that player. I mean, Aiton's not that guy. He's not, he doesn't have that, quite the guard skill offensively. He's not nearly the defensive player. Jaron Jackson, I think, is the defensive player of a guy like Davis, but he doesn't have the offense as far as vertical pop as a rim runner, and he's not as fluid as of a shooter. His form is a little wonky. He has that push shot release, so it's more of a catch-and-shoot iteration. He can shoot a little bit off movement, but he's not Anthony Davis where he's going to two-dribble you and pull up and shoot over the top. Like That's just a very rare skill for a big. So, it, Again, like I think it's just some of the NBA tendencies with some of these teams, they keep manifesting during the draft. Like it seems like people just forget everything we've seen in the playoffs. And it's just like, we have to go back to drafting bigs because that has been the paradigm forever is you always take bigs at the top. And I just don't understand. It's like people get brainwashed this time of year. It's like in two months, it's going to be like, why the hell did Luka Doncic fall to four or five? And I really think that's going to be the case. That's nuts to me. And this isn't an original thought, but do you think there's anything to the, line of thinking that says general managers, scouting departments, 
they would rather swing and miss on a domestic prospect as opposed to an international guy? I do. I think in many capacities, it's not just domestic. It's also the high athleticism guys. They're viewed as safer. So a guy like Aiton, Bagley, those guys are productive and they're athletic. So that intersection leads to them going higher. And it's more defensible, right? If you're the Suns, and let's say Aiden, I think Aiden's going to be a good player. Like I, I think he could be a multi-year all-star. Um, he's, he's that talented. But if Luca ends up being the player that I think he could be at his top, it's pretty easy to explain away, you know, Aiden taking him one. It's like, oh, he's really solid. Uh, you know, ever he was a consensus number one based on the athletic tools. It's just a lot easier to explain than if, if Luca busted and they took him number one. It's like, oh, that's the unathletic white guy. Like that's the that that's the counter to that, right? So yeah. it's very it's it's a lot different as far as explaining to your owner and on your resume. So I think that just this time of year you see a lot of guys banking on athleticism with safety, where I actually have polar opposite views. I think that the IQ and the skill level is what is safe. That's what I would think is safe too, but I think it also with the emphasis on big men at certain points, because again, they're all these guys are super talented and you read up on them and you watch them. They look like great players, but it's, it almost also says a lot about the people who are in charge of these teams or in charge of these departments, just these like old white dudes who I guess just can't like, (laughs) you know, like just can't branch out and they think that the post game is going to make a comeback or maybe it does where they think that big men are going to continue to be more valuable than ever. As you said, the reflexive, response is just that we need to draft big guys at the top of, of this whole thing. And the, the weird thing to me is I know you guys are stats oriented on, on this podcast and the work you guys do, and we'll obviously understand this concept, but if you even take like a, a consensus stat, like real plus minus, you look at offensive real plus minus for fives and there's like six guys that are actually have impact offensive value. So you go down the list and they're either playmakers like Nikola Jokic or there's floor spaces like Carl Towns, who's over a 40% three point shooter. So it's like if you're projecting eight and to go number one and you're banking on the offense, cause he's not good defensively as far as his team defense awareness, his rim protection, he can defend in space though. So he has some avenues to improve. But if you look at the offensive side and you're drafting him for offense, where are the post players on that list? You know what I mean? As far as impact, like they're not there. Like there's a reason that these offensive guys like Boogie Cousins, Anthony Davis, those guys can put the ball on the floor. They can shoot off the dribble. They can beat you one-on-one in face-up situations. Same with Joel Embiid. Like eight hasn't really showed any of that. So if you think he can do that, I can understand. But some of the, I guess some of the justifiers that people are using to have him number one, I just don't, I don't even get as far as an impact standpoint. Now, this is, I'm not even going to sing about a specific person because it's on this topic and it was sort of looped in to a, a few questions. Of the three teams, since we've talked about Luka Doncic falling to four, of the three teams in, in those first three picks, um, Phoenix, Atlanta, and Sacramento, not in that order, obviously, what's, what team would it be passing on Doncic is it most egregious for? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I, th- I, think I think the it's Hawks, probably- personally, if that influences okay. your decision at all. Yeah, I think the most egregious would actually be the Kings, just because I, I, I wouldn't even say the Suns here, just because they're drafting number one and they should take him. But I think the Kings, especially because even in consensus talk, a lot of guys have the top tier as two guys, Aiton and, and Doncic. If they pass on Luka to take Marvin Bagley because Bagley wants to play there, I think that's the rationale right now is like he went and actually worked out for them. So they have the medical information. He he wants to go as high as possible in the draft, Bagley being so you know, he wants to go number two, but if they take him based on that and, and not actually who the best prospect is, like, I just think that it was, it's going to look really bad for them because the Kings, I mean, they desperately need franchise level talent. And how many times are they going to get a chance to draft a guy like Luka Doncic? Yeah, I, I'm completely with you there. And the, the King stuff is funny because now they, I, I've said this, uh, the, the whole Michael Porter Jr. Rumors, it could obviously be just more draft day noise. I feel like we, even the people who've been here before, been there, done that, we all get wrapped up in the pre-draft chatter. But he seems like a guy who maybe if he pans out and everything's right, you can look back and say, you know what, he could be the second best player in this draft. But for them to take him there without pulling the Danny Ainge and trading down when most mocks have Porter falling, I think I've the popular pick has been you see him go to Chicago or Cleveland. And to not look at what kind of value you could get in addition to that, unless you really think Memphis is going to take him at four, that's something that I haven't really been able to to wrap my head around. Yeah, and I'm with you. And I saw a lot of Porter at, at lower levels. It's just if you put yourself and if you empathize with GMs and you put yourself in their shoes, could you really stomach taking that guy given the back injury, given some of the character concerns you've heard about at number two? And it's just a, it's stuff. a tough pill to swallow, man. Like all of a sudden he yeah. has hip problems. Like, <laughs> um. It's, Oh, you'd be shocked then if they actually took him at number two, right? Without trading out. 
I'd be surprised. I wouldn't necessarily Liz be shocked. Kings, just yeah. give it. Yes, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> uh, it it wouldn't be. I guess it wouldn't be 2013 Cavs taking Anthony Bennett kind of curveball. But it, it would be. What would be funny though is if the Suns ended up taking Doncic after all of this. It was eight and eight and eight and eight and but. Do people have tried to read into the Igor Kokoshkov link with him uh, since he coached him for the Slovenia national team? It would be that would because the draft is going to be thrown for a curveball at some point, and it's in a good way because there's so much talent near the top that someone's going to inevitably make a surprise pick or maybe a trade. But it would just be great to me if it happened at first overall. Everyone's thinking that Doncic is going <laughs> to fall to the Grizzlies or maybe he falls to the to the Mavericks, and then he just goes at number one anyway. Man, that'd be great. I mean, just I mean, all the mocks that people have done, all the intel would just be thrown out the window for for months. It's just you can't really predict certain things like that. But it does sound like from all the indicators we've heard that it's going to be Aiton. I do think there's going to be some chaos on draft night, though. There's just when you have this level of top level talent, not every guy is going to assess. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right, too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. These players equally. Trey Young is kind of a high variance player as far as how the NBA views him. It only takes one team. And I think that there's going to be some firepower in the top 10. I think you'll see a couple teams trade up. Um, maybe Memphis trades. That, that seems to be the hot spot at number four. But even Atlanta, for example, could move down if they really like Trey and they don't see the value there at three. Now, you're higher on Trey, I think, than most. Or, you know what? I would say you're in line with what people thought of Trey Young, maybe like four to six months ago, <laughs> but now you seem to be a little bit higher on him than most. Is there something that you just seen from him that can, that continues to make you think he belongs that high as maybe a top five prospect? Uh, are you not concerned about his lack of length on the defensive end and size? Obviously, do you just think that where I fall with him is he specialized essentially in making something out of nothing? Uh, while at Oklahoma and so it's kind of when you look at how his shooting percentage is cratered over the final leg of the season I almost feel like it's unfair because he's not uh, just the talent around him wasn't good and he'll have more time to adjust at the NBA level and I I tend to think now he's being underrated but I'm trying to th I, I don't know that I would still have him as a top I think you have him third on your board or is it fifth on your board I, I can't remember at this point but is there something you see in him is it just the unprecedented shot making ability that makes you put him that high still yeah, I have him third. I'm just obsessed with the upside of Trey Young. Like, if he hits, maybe it's only like a 15% chance, but if he hits, he's going to be one of the most impactful players in the class, maybe even the most impactful player, just because of his offense. I mean, his skill level is is freaking outlier. As far as everything goes, pull-up shooting, everybody knows about the 30-foot range, but that guy rarely got a chance to play off the ball. Like He was 14 of 19 on unguarded cash-and-shoot threes in the half court this past year. That tells you two things. One, he's basically knocked down. Two, he never gets attempts off the ball because Oklahoma needed him to run the show all the time. Right. He has the ball handling and his best overall skills actually is passing. Like he sees the floor. His anticipatory passing is incredible. Uh, he's passing functionality as far as he can throw a left-handed skip pass across the, the court. I don't think that five guys can make that pass with their offhand in the league. So I, I just, I love his upside on that end. I'm a little bit more reserved on him. I don't have him in the same tier as like a Jaron Jackson, who's my number two guy, just because of the things you know to the size and the defensive downside could be pretty considerable. But overall, I just, if I'm betting on somebody in the class, which I think all of these guys, a lot of these guys have flaws that could be, you know, somewhat fatal. I, just give me the highest upside guy, especially offensively. I want as many initiator kind of players who can dribble, pass and shoot and make decisions at a high level. He just brings that in spades. The, I saw a tweet last night from at Cosmos, and I'm sure you saw this too. He Trey Young only had 19 uncontested three point attempts as a freshman. Yep, and he made 14 of them. That's I mean the percentage exactly. is okay, like that's insane. But the fact that he only had 19 uncontested three point attempts, <laughs> even if you cake in the variance factor when looking at tracking data and stuff like that, that's patently absurd. Yep, and it's a micro. I mean, it's a fair sample too. I mean, if you watch that team, he he had the ball the entire time because nobody else could really create, and that's when you started seeing the percentages drop over the course of the season because teams would just load up on him. You, if you freeze frame some of the still shots of of him dribbling, you would see a zone defense essentially like a three person contain on him, <laughs> and like two wings in the corner, like they. Other teams didn't care about the other guys on that team. They were just gearing up to stop him. So I think that was responsible, at least in part, 
to his decline over the course of the season. But there are some attrition issues with him. How well can his body hold up? He doesn't have elite physical tools. He has pretty suspect, of course, physical tools. So can he hold up over an 82-game season and then play the playoffs? I think those are fair concerns. I remember I saw his usage rate. Was it like 37 or 37.1? And I, I looked at it, and I was like, that actually seems low. I was like, it's such a high <laughs> usage rate, and I thought it seemed so low. Do you think there's a scenario in which he gets past Orlando at number six? Yes, I do. I think that I, somebody just tweeted that they are basically going between him and Colin Sexton in, in Sexton at the slight edge. I think it might have been ESPN's uh, pre-draft uh, show that they have on right now, like they're mocking the draft or something. So you could absolutely see him fall past the Magic. I mean, if Bomba falls to six, for example, I think the Magic, that's much more of a guy in line with John Hammond's draft history as far as taking the length. So I can't really I don't see him falling past nine. I think that's his soft floor. Um, even though I think Gaboni, Jonathan Gaboni noted that he didn't work out well for the Knicks or something like that, but I can't imagine him getting past nine. I'm, I either want the Knicks as a, I guess an indifferent Knicks fan as, 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 um, as much as I can feel what I want for them to draft. I really want Bridges <laughs> to end up there. Or again, my, my crush on Alexander persists where if they took him at number nine, I'd be totally cool with it. Um, oh, let me see. Oh, this is from Taylor Dalton, which I actually thought was a really interesting question at Taylor Dalton 24. Do you think Jonte Porter should have stayed in this year's draft? Uh, that's a great question. I think so. Just because I looked at his returning situation to Missouri that he lost a bunch of his guards. So now the situation just got worse for him. So I never would advise somebody to go when they have first round pub. Like I think the Spurs really liked him at 18. You could, of course they did like the most Spurs pick of all time. So him returning to a, a worse situation, that's what does it for me. I mean, he definitely had to improve his body. He had the highest body fat percentage of the combine and in, in a vacuum, I would have understood it more, but just with his, his, his situation next year, at Missouri, maybe that wasn't, you know, a great idea. We saw that with Robert Williams this year, he returned for a sophomore year campaign was playing like out of position at the three and the four because <laughs> that, that Tyler Davis is the five there and it just didn't do him any good. You know, like if you would have gone back to a situation that would have showcased his game in a different light, maybe played more spread pick and roll as the five, I would understand it. But yeah, Jonte's situation is not great. And you had him, I think when I looked, you had him in like the top 15 of your big board of this draft, right? The 12th, I think it was. Yeah, it was definitely, I, w I would have settled on him in the 10 to 12 range around there. I think he's hyper-skilled, and there's an inefficiency for guys who are out of shape in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up, and this actually from Matt Venata, at Matt V5, should the, and this is going to have to bisect with some Kawhi Leonard talk, should the Spurs try to trade into the top three? I don't know that they have the assets to do so without moving Kawhi Leonard and even with Leonard I don't think there's any team in the top three that should be giving up their pick for him yeah that's a great point I mean I don't know if you can work out a deal where both sides are going to agree to it I think that they should try if they really if the reputation really is as tarnished as it's been reported I would try to go get Luka Doncic and like reset and have that next generation kind of player and align it around him. Uh, Memphis at four makes some sense just because they seem to be intrigued. I, I, mean, I think they might take the dice roll on Kawhi. They're in win-now mode. Uh, you can work out some deals with Chandler Parsons and Pau Gasol. There's an overarching deal there, but I still, I, if I was Memphis, I would just take the best young player available just because I don't know if Kawhi signs long-term. And this is what you're getting at in the top three is, like, if Phoenix trades the number one pick for Kawhi and he walks in a year, like that's a, that's a really bad deal. That's a, that's <laughs> that's probably a fireable. That's a fireable offense, wouldn't it be? Like I, yes. I mean, of course the owner's gonna the owner's gonna sign off on that. So it's not like the the GM is gonna be responsible for it. Overall, it, it's more of an ownership decision too. But it, it's pretty. I think that's getting a little bit too cavalier at the top. I mean, you got to really have assurances, and I don't think that any of these teams are gonna have it. Well, that I mean, you hit it right there. Is in a vacuum, Kawhi Leonard is worth any pick in this draft, but you can't. Oh yes, you know Phoenix. He's not going to go to Phoenix and resign. They would be a team that you could see if there was a team. Well, I guess the stuff with the Kings that you have two wild cards there, but the Suns seem very interested and invested in winning now, and so you could maybe talk yourself into them taking that gamble. But to do so without getting that sort of wink, wink from Kawhi and Uncle Dennis would be reckless and it's to me unfathomable unfathomable even for the kings i couldn't see them being so daft and brash to go and give up the number two pick for this top five player when he's healthy but let's let's not forget that 
He only played in nine games last year and was dealing with a quad injury that was called or compared to a degenerative disease, which, oh my God, wow, that should be a red flag in itself. But to do something like that for a player who probably leaves next year or who hasn't guaranteed that he'll return, I don't know how you even begin to talk yourself into it. Yeah, I'm totally, I'm with all of that. Maybe if you're the Lakers, if the Lakers had a top three or four pick, they could maybe talk themselves into it because you have the market allure, but I would just wait it out another year, keep the pick, and then just sign Kawhi as a free agent. I think that would be the, the smarter move, but at least th- there'd be more justification because apparently he wants to play in LA, and if you can get him in your building for a year, maybe you can talk him into resigning long-term, but even then, I would probably just keep the pick. I mean, it's, it's where it is to say, I think the injury stuff you brought up, all that you have to factor it into the calculus. It's the same thing with like a Michael Porter situation where I think a lot of people just look at it optimistically and wish these things away. But we're at this point for a reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I was going to say this to the end um, because I know you are still an NBA guy as well. Kawhi Leonard prediction. Is he on the Spurs after the draft? Ooh, after the draft. I still, yeah, I think he is after the draft. I think they probably wait till free agency when cap situations kind of clear up a little bit to survey the league. I, I think it's probably going to be too soon after the draft. I agree with you, but I'm going to take it one step further and am prepared to die on this hill. I'm convinced he's still going to be in San Antonio at least to start next season. Okay. I just, totally reasonable. Without, I feel like once Pop gets like a face-to-face meeting with him, that either things could be solved vis-a-vis what he did with LaMarcus Aldridge last year, or even if you're the Spurs, if you can't get a team like Philly or Boston or Los Angeles to go all in on a Leonard trade, um, I, or even the what, what was the report um, today that the Clippers are willing to trade Tobias Harris in a first-round pick, like if those are the type of low-ball offers you're getting, they're not going to get much worse at midseason. You might as well just try and re- rehabilitate his on-court value at least prior to February and see what you could flip him for then. That's just where I'm at with him. Yeah, right? I'm definitely I'm totally with you there. I, I'm not trading him for anything less than like a King's Ransom type of deal. And I'm not sure if that's going to come with his injury uncertainty. So this the stars aren't really aligning for a player of this caliber to be traded, just given the circumstances. Ben Wart at Benjamin Wirt, W-I-R-T, asks, what should the Timberwolves do at number 20? And or and should they possibly pair it in an Andrew Wiggins trade? It's a great question. I mean, I'm obviously not the biggest Wiggins fan, but I think you're kind of married him right now. Yeah, (laughs) it's just it's a tough situation because, I mean, you just signed him to that max extension um, and, you know, he's not living up to it. I don't know what what is his value even in the league? Like, I'll ask you that. Like, what do you think that his value is as far as long term? Like, I think a team would take him on like the Kings, for example. I think they would roll the dice and be like, okay, maybe we can make this work. But what are they giving you in return? Like, you're not getting the number two pick for Andrew Wiggins, of course. You're, I think what would, and actually, here's just something to really consider. The last year of Andrew Wiggins' deal, which actually doesn't seem that far off when you put it in these terms, 22, <laughs> 23, he's making $33.3 million. That's like, Same. it's just, it's absurd to think about. That five-year, $146.5 million deal. I think what you could get for Wiggins, not untradeable, but you're either, if you want a top asset or even a collection of assets, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to swallow a terrible deal in return. It'd be a situation, I'm not going to say Memphis specifically because they don't really have much to offer because I don't think you trade the number four pick with Parsons for Wiggins, but you would have to take a deal back like Parsons and then you'll get value attached to Parsons in exchange for Wiggins or you just get cap ballast yourself where a team will send you back short-term money or expiring money and be willing to take on Wiggins because at this point, even if you want to factor in how young he is, the potential he has shown at points as a featured scorer. And I do think there is value in a guy who looks uncomfortable being an accessory scorer and looks at home when he's on the ball and attacking. That doesn't mean he was the most efficient player when he did it because he wasn't, but there might be more to work with there. At the same time, to me, he is clearly more albatross than asset right now. And it's not even close. Yeah. And I agree. And I think realistically, I mean, if they could get something in return for Wiggins, that's really good. I think they might consider it. But you just have to look at it from a political standpoint and taking this guy with the number one pick. When Joel Embiid goes three, of course, there are all the injury concerns. It's just a little it's a little early to punt, I think. Um, and that that mentality has probably gotten teams in trouble in the past. But just from a realistic standpoint, I don't see them moving off him unless they're getting some high level returning asset, maybe even either present or future for what they should do with the 20th pick. I love Kevin Herter on that team. I just love Kevin Herter overall. Six seven wing from Maryland. Um, 
maybe the best off-movement shooter in this class. He's certainly up there, like a Trey Young, for example. They need shooting in the worst way. I think that that is the key. And if you can get him, Herter kind of has a little Corver ability. I don't think he's going to be quite as good of a shooter, but same conceptual idea with him at that positional size. Uh, he would just fit a lot of needs. They, Minnesota ideally needs like a two-way stopper, um, three and D guy. Those guys don't come around very often, frankly. Like they're just not there. Like OG Ananobi last year was the closest thing we've seen to that kind of player, and he wasn't like a shoe in to shoot by any means. He performed a little bit better there than he probably was expected to coming into the draft. But yeah, I like Kevin Herter at twenty if he's still there. His range is more like I think he can go as high as thirteen, and then he's his floor is probably twenty five to the Lakers. That's quite the baseline then for him or range. That's quite the variance overall. I know Andy really wants him to end up in Utah at number 21. If he goes at number 20, just before the jazz pick, uh, (laughs) Andy will probably riot in the streets of Wyoming (laughs) would be my guess. Yeah. Which is very possible. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think he's going to go 13. I think that's a little too high, but I give, I think Jerry West could squint and see a little bit of clay Thompson and depends on who else is on the board. We'll kind of see how it plays out, but yeah, I don't expect him to fall past uh, the Lakers at 25. He could definitely be there for the jazz at 21. This question, I'm not even sure he'll be able to answer off the cuff, but I found it really interesting. How would you rank the following four players? DeAnthony Melton, Ellie Okobo, Colin Sexton, and Jalen Brunson. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have actually, I have Melton as number one, just with his role on a winning team. He's not a pure point guard, but he's one of the best 6'4 defensive guards I've seen coming into the draft, kind of reminiscent of a skinnier Marcus Smart. Of course, he doesn't have that outlier girth, but better chance to shoot than Marcus Smart does, does I think, just because he started working with Drew Hanlon, refined those mechanics. I just really like Melton. If like you draft Luka Doncic in the top five, this is the kind of guard I would try to pair with him, someone like this who can defend point guards at a high level at the point of attack. Look ridiculous team defender, like off the charts instincts there. Uh, second would probably actually be Elia Kobo, just because of his shooting ability. I think that if you're rolling the dice on him and Sexton, both those guys are more primaries. Uh, give me the more high level shooting outcome, just because I value off the dribble pull up shooting so much with guards. Sexton's a better athlete for sure, more defensive upside by a considerable amount. But I'm, I'm worried about him marrying my team to Sexton over multiple years if he never becomes a, a great playmaker for others and can't really shoot the ball off the dribble. I love Jalen Brunson, one of my favorite kind of sleepers in the class. I'd still take him fourth just because I view him more as a backup point guard only without the upside of these other guys and how valuable really is a backup point guard even if he's a tenure tenure in the league guy because it's a more of a fungible asset so i would rank those guys in order melton nakobo sexton and brunson i'm not high on sexton at, at all and i the i've seen some mocks have him going to the knicks at number nine um that i just don't i I've, i'm like you i value shooting and specifically pull-up shooting in the backcourt or just from anybody at this point above yeah. all else and i his shot selection just i mean wow was it's just I don't know he worries me and again I think I've fallen too in love with Shea Alexander where I probably put him <laughs> in front of all four of these guys pretty comfortably. Yeah, and that's absolutely reasonable. I think that actually might be more of a consensus take as far as mainstream. I think Shea. A lot of guys have Shea over Sexton, who's probably the second guy. Melton, I think, is a little bit undervalued in this class. But I agree with you with Sexton. If he was a better passer, he's just never been that guy. Like in high school, he was a high level self creator. Uh, he, he was not he's not adept in pick and roll yet as far as reading the floor. I just think there's more to his game that he needs to grow. And the most alluring part about Sexton overall is his personality. Like everybody loves his personality and it's very evident and it's very clear. If you see him in person, he is <laughs> he's a great I mean, he's I don't even know how to explain him. Like he's ultra competitive, but he's just like batshit crazy for the most part. Like he <laughs> he just gets into guys. He's he's really Really, really fun and really entertaining and engaging. But man, like if your best trait, if you're drafting a guy in the top 10 and your number one thing about him is his personality and like his drive and his competitiveness, that's just a harder sell for me. I'm with you there. Is there, this is from Jordan Scott at Jordan 53. Is there an older wing that can contribute right away that you see will be undervalued due to his age in this draft? I think that guy's probably Jacob Evans out of Cincinnati. Just a guy who really high level thinker, six five and a half, not ideal measurables, but high level team defender. Cincinnati was the number two defense in the country last year. A lot of that was due to him and Gary Clark. Uh, very NBA conducive surrounding as far as his defensive scheme. They switched a lot, a lot of communication. So he, he's adept at that already. He kind of knows how to play team-level defense. And then offensively, he has that one-motion shot off the catch, smooth release. He can dribble the ball secondarily, make 
pretty quick decisions overall. So I just I see him filling a role. He's a younger junior. I think he's still only 20. So he's actually on the plane of a lot of these guys as far as age goes. But I think he's probably a little bit underrated. We've seen Boston. The Celtics have given him two workouts now, I think. And that's always a good sign because anything Boston does oh, in the God. draft is just, is just gold at this point. <laughs> Is that? Do you think that's his range too? That he's going to end up in that with with them? Where where are they at? Uh, number twenty seven. That that's where he'll go. Yeah, I think that's on the higher end. So I have his range about twenty five to forty. I think that he probably doesn't fall past like thirty five. So more realistically, it's probably twenty five to thirty five. But more conservatively, in the middle of that, I could see Boston taking him at twenty seven pretty easily. That I guess they're in position to make that gamble since they do not select again in that window that you have. The next question I have is, do we see any of these incoming draft picks as a major incentive for any of these big name free agents? And uh, I believe he's, this is from Jose Samiego at Posterizer 23. I believe he's kind of talking to, could they play a role in maybe swaying LeBron or Paul George to sign somewhere? I don't think so. I, I just think they're probably too uncertain at this juncture. Um, I know there was some appeal last year with Lonzo Ball and saying, oh, like get these free agents to come to the team because of the style of play that he has. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's that guy in this draft. I think guys would like to play with Trey Young overall just because of the shooting um, and, and the playmaking for others. And he's a huge name. So maybe he rides that and some guys view some equity there. Luke is a, a European guy, of course. I don't know if they're going to give him like the credence he probably deserves. But uh, the big guys, I don't really see anybody being like, oh, let's go play with Marvin Bagley or DeAndre Aiden. I don't think they're that caliber. And it's just like you rarely see that said about bigs. Like LeBron has talked about post-finals, like the, his willingness to play with high IQ players and guys who can really anticipate and play make. I don't know if anybody's going to jump off the, the page for him or someone like that other than maybe like a Trey Young type. This kind of ties into that. And I actually, this was one of my favorite questions. The Twitter handle is... At Delhi underscore fam, the name of it is with the eighth pick, so anonymous, I suppose. Let's say <laughs> Cleveland knows one way or the other that LeBron is leaving or LeBron is staying. What's their best pick at number eight if he stays? What's their best pick if he's if they know he's leaving? Or is it just the same pick? That's a great point. I don't think it's the same. I think a lot of people have said Trey Young regardless. Um, I don't think you can play Trey Young against the Warriors or the Rockets currently. So if LeBron stays it's with the thought of competing now and i just think he's going to get hunted too much in this modern next three to four year landscape i would take a guy like miles bridges at eight i think that he just fits the modern archetype really well as far as you know he can provide lebron a little secondary creation uh he can guard on ball with his strength and then can shoot off motion he can shoot a ton of threes he can play off lebron at a high level so if if lebron leaves i think the guy is clearly trey young for me because then you need a primary creator um, in the next generation, you just have to have somebody who can handle the ball and initiate your offense. They wouldn't have that guy. So if LeBron stays, Miles Bridges, if he leaves, Trey Young for me. Would you be disappointed if they ended up going with Mikael Bridges there as opposed to Miles Bridges? Should LeBron be staying if that's the assumption? Not at all. No, no. He'd, he'd be my second guy listed. I just think that he doesn't provide quite enough playmaking when you go against the high-level teams. Uh, he's more of a shooter. At least you want him in that role. He can shoot over the top a little bit on post-ups or mid-post actions, but he can't handle the ball like Miles can. And his lack of strength in certain respects probably won't afford LeBron the ability to play off of those you know, primary wing assignments that are against bigger wings. It, if he falls this far, Michael Porter Jr. and the, and the Cavs end up taking him, do you think that tips their hand one way or the other of what they think LeBron is doing? Or do you think at that point when they're at number uh, eight that it's just, oh, he fell this far. It's the best player available. We're going to take him. I think the latter. I think that that's how I would read that is he, at eight. You can start talking yourself into value. I mean, conceptually, he does fit around LeBron with his ability to shoot the ball. Gives him a different component in the front court and a self-creator against the highest against the best teams in the league. But I think I would probably view it more in the lens of, you know, we just can't pass up this opportunity at eight. How often, I mean, this guy was a number one prospect in his class before the season. He's falling to eight. We got, we got to jump on this. Yeah, that would make sense. And do you have a, was also going to save this for the very end, but do you have a LeBron prediction for the summer? Does he, even if it's his general, does he stay? Does he go? Do you have a team that you have an eye on for him? 
I think they're safe. I don't know what to say safe. I don't think there is a safe bet here. I wouldn't bet on anything, <laughs> but maybe he, I think everybody's thinking LA just because his kids are going to high school there. I think you can talk himself into if Paul George joins him, if they get in the Kawhi Leonard sweepstakes, if we want to put on our, you know, purple and gold lens glasses here, I think that's a possibility. My low key sleeper, though, is, has been Houston. I, I think that that makes the most conceptual sense overall. Daryl Morey always figures things out. So people are like, oh, they can't make it work. It's like Daryl Morey will always make it work. Like, that's not an issue for me. He's going to find a way. And I think the opportunity to pair up with <laughs> obviously Chris Paul and James Harden, like, that's a, you know, that's a damn formidable opponent against the Warriors. That's basically the only way he's going to have a chance to beat the Warriors over the next couple of years. So my, my pick, I've been asked this a couple of times on podcasts, and I've been saying Houston just because I feel like it makes the most logical sense. You're, I'm right in line with you. I've said this comes with the caveat that I'm 0 for 2 on his free agency decisions, but <laughs> I have it as Cleveland or Houston because, and I think this probably contributes to why I would also be wrong, though. The Warriors make everything such a wild card. As you said, the Rockets, they really are. If he wants to contend with Golden State in the, over the next one to three years, they're the only team that guarantees legitimate contention. At the same time, he has to look at, well, what happens after the two or three years when Chris Paul's aging? James Harden's going to be over 30 by that point. What is a, how is a player like him who doesn't really rely on his athleticism um, g- going to age? So uh, there's that factor. And then because the Warriors exist, is, is, is he comfortable enough in his legacy to say, I've just run into this wall that I'm not going to beat? And then that means that he could go anywhere, that he'll prioritize or off-court life, or off-court endeavors, and he'll go to Los Angeles, will he be more willing to join an open-ended window team like Philly that probably isn't going to win a title with him over the next one to two years as they figure out that fit with Ben Simmons? To me, he seems like more of a wild card than ever just because the Warriors exist and all that means for the context of his decision. But overall, I think in the end, it makes it more likely he chases the closest thing to a sure thing, which would be in Houston, or he just stays in Cleveland out of convenience. Yeah, I can't really say it any better than that. It's just a very convoluted situation. If we knew what was really driving him, like I, he to read into some of his comments, like playing with higher IQ players, he's probably just like shading J.R. Smith with that statement. So who <laughs> knows how how much to really read into it at a high level? But if we really knew what was driving him, as far as how important off court factors were and all of that, I think it would make the decision a little bit more clear. But we just don't. Um, rounding into the last three questions here so that I won't take up too much more of your time. Uh, <laughs> Michael at Hey, I'm Cuban B, uh, asks, I'm sure you're getting this a lot, but who would you bet dollars on to be the next Kyle Kuzma slash Rudy Gobert slash Draymond Green slash DeAndre Jordan? I'm assuming he means that late first round, early second round find. Yeah, that's a great question. Just nobody really pops this here to that level. And of course, they rarely do because most of those players like, define their own archetype. Like there wasn't a Draymond Green before there was Draymond Green. So it's hard to anticipate these things. I think the guy with the most upside, I've already talked about Kevin Herter, but I expect him to go a little bit higher than that. A guy like Mitchell Robinson is the biggest wild card for me just because he has that kind of Clint Capella-esque talent level as far as as a rim runner. He was the best rim protector in this class in AAU, like even better than Jaron Jackson. So... I think the ability is there. There's a lot of off-court issues with him. Nothing like Stark, but like he doesn't take, I guess, fame that well or something. More of a reserved guy. But if he goes to the right system, if he goes to the right team, like if somehow if he ends up on the Spurs or a team like that, and they can just really develop him over time, I just think that his upside is considerable. Like his upside is right up there to me with a guy like Mo Bamba. Maybe not quite. Not maybe not quite as high, but like he enters that realm. Like a lot of guys th- saw those two as comparable coming out of high school. So there's a, there's a lot of upside there, but there's also a lot of variance. Like he could be a Hassan Whiteside as far as how he thinks the game. Like he doesn't have a very high feel level. So a lot of variance. But if you're looking for upside and a guy to kind of redefine things at that point in the draft, I don't think you're going to hit a higher upside guy than a Mitchell Robinson type. Could you see him falling past? I think the Lakers have been the most popular destination for him at number 25, or even more than that. Could you see him? Is he definitely first round? He's going to go in the first round to you. I don't think so. I think he could actually go second round. You could see a situation like a DeAndre Jordan, Hassan Whiteside. Both those guys went at the top of the second round. I do think he goes to the top of the second round if he does fall. He doesn't fall past probably 36, 37, just because at that point, you know, you're just like, there's no possible way there's anybody that has a higher upside in this range than he does. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Um, potential trade, and this is actually one of my own because I was talking about this earlier today. If you're the if who says no, the Atlanta Hawks get the number fifteen pick, and the Wizards get the number nineteen and number thirty picks. 
Hmm. Interesting. My my what, reasoning, and I actually entered. I was writing, or I guess intellectual scraps about this earlier today. My reasoning actually factored in Mitchell Robinson and said, if there's the chance that he's going to slip past um, all the teams in uh, the first round, and you're the Wizards and you have number thirty, and you know that you can kind of use more athleticism up front, that it makes a lot of sense because you could probably get a similar type player at number 19 as you would to number 15, probably inferior, but they need wings. And I think, you know, we don't really know where Smith is going to go is I think I've seen him go closer to late lottery to uh, outside the lottery to falling to 16 at points or, or maybe even a little bit further than that. Uh, I, I think Shea Alexander has a ton of variants, even though I'm high on him. You could also hope that maybe Robert Williams, if you want to go big would then fall to number 19. I, I honestly don't, I, I don't, I think that would be the bigger risk for them there, but to pick up that extra first round pick. And if you were able to get a guy like Mitchell Robinson, who tumbled down the draft boards at number 30, I would then think that kind of makes it closer to a no brainer. I like the idea overall. I, I like how you included 19 with the Hawks. I do think that they, they probably don't draft there. As far as at the end of the day, I could see them moving up or down. Um, they're, they're apparently enthralled with like a Lonnie Walker type. So if he falls to 15, I think you can see the Hawks make a move at that juncture. It definitely makes sense for both sides. I think that's well thought out. Um, do you expect there to be more or less trades than usual this year? This comes from Clayson Searle. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. At Clayson underscore Searle uh, at C-L-A-Y-S-O-N underscore S-E-A-R-L-E. I don't know like per year like what the average trade number is so I can't really say historically but just based on feel I think probably more you just how right. many teams seem active at the top Atlanta Memphis we hear a lot about the Mavericks at 5 uh Bulls at 7 some Cavs variants at 8 I just think you could see a lot of different things happen so it Sometimes it happens when there's like a stark drop off in talent. And I do think that this draft, a lot of guys think that that's like around maybe eight or nine or something like that. That's not my personal opinion, but I, I guess a lot of league personnel, the high upside guys, whenever they drop off, that's usually where you see the action because teams are trying to get into that range. So I think this draft kind of just resembles that a like more than most just because we have more top level talent. So maybe there's more opportunities to move up in certain drafts. If there's a clear like top two guys, uh, you might not see as much movement because those teams aren't going to trade the picks. But when you have like six or seven or eight guys that are all, you know, high ceiling guys, you might see more action. And I'm with you there. It's based on, I, I mean, I guess I could look back and you could see the average number of trades that happened. But based on feel, when you, you factor in everything you said, there's also just the cap situation this summer. It'll be easier to make these salary dump moves when the books reset and a couple more teams have cap space. But when you're going to have as many buyers who kind of want to get off money, I think that would pave the way for some more trades. And the other thing is, I think we have five teams with multiple first round picks and you have to think that incites movement one way or the other, whether it's they want to combine them to move up, whether they just don't want to have all these uh, incoming players on their docket and they're just willing to move them maybe to a team that wants another pick uh, it could even be, as you alluded to as well, it does seem, and again, this is based on feel, that there's just more talk about teams in the top five thinking about trading down than I really remember. Like, if you forget, like, the early, mid, like, lot, like the top five, I don't, we've heard rumors about basically everyone except the Mavericks, who would probably be the team that you would think has the most incentive or would be most likely to move out in a vacuum just because you know they like to compete. And I think all of that might just coalesce into this more chaotic than usual draft night. Yeah, and I do think some of these teams have different reads on some of the top prospects too. Like certain, I mean, this is pretty typical, but it seems like even more divisive this year. Like a lot of teams, we've we've heard view Jaron Jackson as potentially the highest upside player in the draft. That's going to matter because I think it deviates. Not everybody views you know Marvin Bagley or Mo Bamba or Trey Young, especially through the same lens. So when teams value stuff differently, let's say that the Hawks really do value Trey Young, which seems to be the case, but they don't want to take him at three. I think that just incentivizes them to take advantage of the pick value at three and maybe look to move down. Um, and I actually did not write down a name for this one. We did have one last one, so I apologize to whoever asked this. Uh, who would be the most Spursy pick for the Spurs at number 18? <laughs> Spursy pick, but I love it. Um, well, obviously, it would have been Jonte if you stayed in the draft, like 100%. That's like the most Spurs pick, literally, of all time. Uh, <laughs> I think for the Spurs in this draft, 
<sighs> that's a little tougher. If Zaire's Troy Brown falls, count. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I like Troy Brown. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, Troy Brown. Yeah, I'm looking for like a super high field guy on my list. Like it's too high for DeAnthony Melton. I think he's just not going to go that high. But that would not surprise me if they were interested in him. Yeah, I think Troy Brown's actually a really good one, just because he his interviews and stuff. Like he's a really high intelligence player and the IQ, like the ability to dribble pass and in theory shoot. I think there's some Evan Turner type downside with him, but that seems to be a kind of guy that the Spurs would value, just a high intellect guy who has good instincts and has the positional size and the skill level. Is it are people split on whether or not he's going to develop into a good jump shooter? Just because I've seen him kind of go all over the place on draft boards as well, anywhere from like not in the lottery, but maybe in that 15 to 17 range to then he kind of plunges to the mid 20s in certain ones. I think that's yeah, that's indicative of just how people come down on his shooting and his athleticism overall. He's not a very high level athlete as far as explosiveness. He's kind of hunched over, so not the best posture. And when you combine that with the lack of jump shooting sample, like he was never a three point shooter in AAU play either. He's always been pretty decent from the line, but as far as extending his range, it's just not there. If you watch him shoot in workouts and stuff like that, like he misses way too many shots. And most shooters in the NBA, I mean, they're pretty lights out in workouts, especially. So not a lot of confidence there, but I think a lot of guys are just really high on his character and his ability to improve with that intersection of how young he is. So that's where you see more of the variance. He could go, I think he does probably end up going top 20. Like the Spurs wouldn't surprise me at all, but I think his range is more, we've heard even 11 to the Charlotte actually. So maybe like 11 wow. to like 20 to 25, 11 to 25. I could not imagine taking Troy Brown over a miles bridges, for example, but I've seen crazier things in the draft. Is he the player that you think in the first round that had, I mean, I, you can't eyeball this that has the highest variance though, or one of the two or three guys that has that just most ridiculous discrepancy in terms of his draft range he's definitely up there i don't like kevin Knox to me now is that guy and we were hearing him about him at six him at seven i have him more like in the 16 range but yeah i mean he's probably not that high variance anymore because it seems like he's going like it from the six to at worst the 12 range so maybe not him yeah it's tough man like I, yeah I, I think troy brown is right there as far as these prospects kevin herter is another guy we've already talked about Zaire Smith is probably the last guy to mention. I don't know how high a lot of the NBA folks are going to be on his game, but we can conceptually see him go 12 or 13. He could fall to the mid 20s. That would not surprise me at all. That it's Smith is there. And I promise this will be the last one. Is there a certain, it seems like fit is going to be huge for him. Is there a team that you would like to see him on when just looking at him and saying to have the best career arc possible, that this would be the best destination for him? For me, I think that's the Clippers at 12 or 13, just because they have two picks. They're not trying to win now. It's more of a long-term view. And you have to cultivate him and develop him over time. I don't think you want to just plug and, plug and play him in a specific role. If you're drafting him, you kind of want to bet on the upside as far as the ability to maybe tap into some unleashed skill potential as a ball handler, as a shot creator. He's got a pretty wicked step back. He has the he has the ingredients to be a scorer type as far as just physical gifts. He's got a great first step. His handle's good enough. He just doesn't have high-level scoring instincts. So I think it's going to be more of a patient process. So the Clippers make sense. It's just in that range. It makes sense for them to take maybe a higher floor player to pair with him. Uh, like if Shea Alexander's there, they can take Shea and then take Zaire Smith. I think that makes a lot of sense. If he goes to a team... I don't know, that wants to win now, like Minnesota or something, for example. I, I don't know if he's going to thrive as well in a setting like that. Cole, this was fantastic. I appreciate you letting uh, me steal so much of your time uh, leading up to the draft. I will be pestering you again, I'm sure, in the weeks and months to come, <laughs> as you are also an NBA CBA guy. Um, our listeners always appreciate it. Everyone, please remember to follow Cole on Twitter, at Cole Zewicker. That's it's at C-O-L-E-Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. He is a co-founder and writer for The Stepian. They're at The Stepian, at T-H-E-S-T-E-P-I-E-N. You really need to check them out if you haven't already. Their draft coverage has been fantastic. They've I've already started checking out their 2019 draft stuff. Fantastic <laughs> as well. Um, so do yourself a favor. Head over to thestepian.com there. As always, you can remember to yell at me on Twitter about all I'm doing wrong, at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Andy is at Andrew D. Bailey. You can follow MBA Math, our parent sponsor, whatever we want to call it, host at this point, at MBA underscore math. Uh, you can also follow Hardwood Knox at 
Hardwood Knox. Um, and please do remember to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. We are everywhere you get your podcast now, save for Spotify, which is taking a little while to get up there. But still the best way to help out the pod. We appreciate seeing those ratings and review numbers go up. Please continue to do that. You can also still get 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That's mbamath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, which if you listen to this podcast, should be easy enough to spell B-E-N-O. We talk about them a lot. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to Kyle Anderson. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to stay within budget when making updates to your bathroom. We do it right, too, by offering up to 20% off select toilets during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. Step up your style even more with floor tile starting at just 49 cents a square foot. For your next bath project, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right, too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only.